1: Hello and welcome to the Battleground Podcast. Today, we are joined by Maureen Bannon, CEO of the mega successful show War Room with Steve Bannon. Maureen's a West Point graduate, and Iraq War veteran. She has dedicated her life to fighting for our country. As John Adams, one of our founding fathers, once said, posterity. You will never know how much it costs the present generation to preserve your freedom. I hope you will make good use of it. Maureen knows firsthand the cost of fighting for our freedom, both at home and abroad. She pushed through the pain and challenges of West Point. She deployed to Iraq and she returned home to continue fighting for America. We'll be discussing Maureen's experience at West Point, her deployment to Iraq, and how it shaped her views on foreign policy, how she became essentially America first. We'll also talk about the pain of watching her father be indicted and how she found the strength to persevere. Join us in this important conversation and let us all remember that it is our duty as Americans to fight for freedom and make sure that our children inherit a nation that is better than one we had. And without further ado, I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Maureen Bannon. Hey, Maureen Bannon, welcome to the show. It's awesome to have you here. And my first question is, of course, what do I call you? Should I I call you Captain Bannon? Or should I call you Lil Honey Badger or Minnie Bannon? Like, what are you most comfortable with?
2: Um, you can call me anything. I've never heard Lil Honey Badger though. It's I've been called <laughs> Baby Honey Badger, <laughs> but I like Lil Honey Badger.
1: Lil, it has to, it has to be L I L for it to work. Mm-hmm. You know? But yeah.
2: I, I mean, I still get called Captain Bannon on the show. It's funny. That's how people seem to recognize me like in a restaurant here <laughs> in virginia someone yelled across the restaurant captain bannon and i just i mean i had the shocked look on my face because
1: it's oh you're well you're famous now you know Well,
2: and i'm in a very blue area of virginia currently <laughs> so i was just like uh-oh what's going yeah, well, on you know,
1: yeah exactly like he's <laughs> being Like people will come up to me in Pennsylvania and be like, are you Sean Parnell? And I'll be like, it depends what your political beliefs are. (laughs) Like, Why do you
2: want to (laughs) know? Yeah.
1: (laughs) So like, so and I imagine like one of the things that I always found amazing about war room. Now, of course, you know, you're Maureen Bannon, you're Steve Bannon's daughter, who Steve Bannon, 99.9% of the people that are watching the show, probably they know exactly who your dad is. Um, but now you're you're working for War Room and I used to go on War Room like way back in the beginning when he just started that show and now it's blown up into this like I mean it it's grown like Gangbusters it's blown up into this hugely successful um well what's a a it started as I feel like it started as a podcast but maybe it was just a a live stream show now um and You know, when I was on the campaign trail, both for for the House and the Senate, almost everywhere I went, people watched War Room and everywhere I went. I watch you on War Room. Keep going on War Room. See if you can get Bannon to come to one of my events, you know, and um, it's amazing to me, Maureen, how both you and your father have tapped into the base of of this party and what the Republican Party is all about.
2: I I mean, I agree with you. So. Originally, it has been a live show. However, it's uploaded onto Apple Podcasts, so it has in reference by mainstream media. And I know they're trying to do it as a bash to yeah. us, like, oh, it's Indiana's podcast. But I mean, it has become very popular on the live stream. I know a lot of people try and watch it more than listen to the podcast. Um, but I do know a lot of people like when they're driving to work, to and from work, absolutely.
1: Yeah.
2: Kids to and from sports and things like that. They, they turn it on. I mean, I have family member, family members that are, (laughs) tell me that they will turn it on when they're taking their kids to some sport or dance or something like that, just to, to tune in because they can't watch the live streams, but they want the information. Um, and I think that it has become the success that it has because it taps into the activist audience. We're a very activist audience based show and how we, we tell our viewers and the posse members what they can do to get involved, to make a, make a change. We're not just throwing information at you to throw information at you. We're telling you the information in order for you to get motivated to help make the change that we need in this country.
1: It's so funny because um, when I was running for Congress, you know, it was my first time running for political office. So um, you sort of learn as you go. And I was always a grassroots movement type candidate, you know i don't burn bridges with with anybody like i i had a, a good relationship with the establishment or at least so i thought um in the pennsylvania republican party have lots of great connections there but primarily what we were was a grassroots groundswell campaign And what we did was exactly what you do as a show we would just tell people like not only do you need to be involved we want you involved and we'll find a spot for you and this is how you can help um and that's how I came into contact with War Room and your dad. Uh, now, now you're on War Room as well. You're, like I said, you're the CEO of of War Room now. You, your show's big enough to have a CEO. Uh, it's it's amazing. Um, but I came into contact with your dad that way when I start when I found out that Act 77, which is Pennsylvania's no excuse mail-in ballot law, which they rolled out in 2019, was brazenly unconstitutional. And your dad and War Room, the War Room Posse, jumped on board to help us and and like one of my first experiences with it was like I was talking to your dad about it he's like Sean like lay it out like what's at stake here like what can people do and I said Mm -hmm. um well this is why this is why it's unconstitutional like our Pennsylvania state constitution lays out very clear methods for which how people can vote absentee um, it's right in the constitution. Like you need a second grade reading level to figure it out. And your dad was like, your dad is like, okay, so war repository, this is what you could do. Find the number for your representative, state representative, uh, house representative in, in Pennsylvania and call them and tell them that you, th- you don't like this law and you want it to change. And like, and like, I was getting, I got calls like the next week. I'm like, they're like Parnell. Can you please not go on War Room and have Bannon tell people to call us? We're getting like thousands of calls, man. Can you please not do that? And I was like, that's what I realized. I'm like, well, damn, this this show, there's something to the show. And Maureen, this was way back in the beginning, you know? Um, I mean, the show's 20 times bigger today than it was years ago. But this was way back in the beginning. And now it's just it's just a powerhouse, and you're a part of it.
2: Oh, yeah. And even I know they probably had people calling that weren't even residents of Pennsylvania because they were so fired up (laughs) and how wrong that was that they're not going to stand for it, even if they live clear across the country. And that's the (laughs) case. Even now, when we say, like, call your representatives, we'll have posse members call their representatives and then call representatives of states you know, surrounding or county um, districts surrounding them. <laughs> like, okay, I, you better be voting no for this. I'm not standing for this. So um, yeah, I, I think that it's the activist audience has just grown from the very beginning to now. And it it's because of those original audience members being force multipliers and sharing this information had they not done that we might not be as big as we are now because people are that have watched from the very beginning have brought on new viewers have and those viewers have brought on more viewers so you know it's continuing to grow and we're opening the eyes of many people that you know back in 2020 didn't have their eyes open
1: yeah well you you mentioned the term force multiplier and thus far we've talked about war room talked about your dad but Um, force multipliers, obviously it's a military term. You were in the military. You're a West Point grad, um, army captain. Tell me a little about that, Maureen. How did you decide that joining the military, specifically the army was the path that you were meant to walk?
2: So I grew up in a military family for those that don't know, my dad was in the Navy, My uncle was in the Navy. I had a cousin in the Navy. Um, So me going (laughs) to Army. So wait a
1: second. So you go
2: Army? (laughs) Especially during Army-Navy week. Yeah, (laughs) what the? (laughs) But um, so I knew that I wanted to go into the military, and especially after 9-11. So I'm going to date myself here a little bit. I was 13 years old on 9-11, and I knew right then and there, actually, I was like, I want to serve this country. This is not okay with me. What happened? And both my parents had to remind me I was 13 and no one was going to believe I was 17 and able to enlist. Like I couldn't fake four years to try and enlist then. Um, so I, I made the decision, you know, at 17, 18, I'll decide if, the the route in which I'm supposed to go, enlist, officer. Um, And then in high school, I played volleyball growing up. And in high school, I started getting recruited by colleges. And I, I didn't know if I wanted to go ROTC, OCS, the service academies, enlist right out of high school. And I was leaning more towards you know, going to a normal four-year college and doing ROTC or OCS. And my dad actually said, why don't you just reach out to the service academies and see – you know, about their volleyball teams, just see what their volleyball teams are about. And I actually got recruited by all three major service academies, and I ruled out Air Force immediately. That just wasn't (laughs) wasn't for me. Um, And I went to go visit. Wait, wait, wait. Why did you rule out the Air Force? Their coaches just weren't – nothing against the Air Force. (laughs) I guess, yeah, yeah, right. It was just their coaches.
1: (laughs) They just didn't seem – there's going to be a headline. Maureen Bannon hates the Air Force. After- me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll joke with them all day. but yeah, yeah. I have friends that were Air Force, but that just wasn't wasn't my jam. Um, So I w- went to go visit the Naval Academy and just didn't click well with the coaches or the girls on the team. I actually grew up with one of the girls on the team, and she acted like she didn't know me when I went to go oh, visit. Oh, my God.
1: Oh, my so- God.
2: I said beautiful campus. Annapolis is gorgeous. It is, yeah. But I said, you know, this might not be a good fit. And the coach said <laughs> I play based on your based on seniority, so you could be the best player, and if you're not a junior or senior, you could ride the bench. And it to me, it's like why would you go through all of this at the academy to potentially play the sport you love? Um, I mean, I, I'd come out as a commissioned officer. That would be my other passion. But my passion in those four years, it, why? Why would I put myself through that? And then I went to go visit West Point, and I just fell in love. I clicked with the girls on the team. The coaches were amazing, and I just felt like that's where I was meant to be. Um, not saying that four years at West Point was easy because it was, it was hard. But I made it through, and I have my <laughs> diploma framed. Um, I might have not had the best GPA all four years, but I still made it through and I commissioned. Um, And then I served just shy of nine years as an officer in the Army.
1: That's amazing. So, Mm -hmm. okay. So tell me about West Point. So you get there. Was there ever a moment, and we've had a couple of West Pointers on the show. Was there ever a moment where you were like, oh, shit, I immediately regret this decision?
2: Um, I, I would say, you know, during our version of basic training, there were some upperclassmen that knew that I was a recruited athlete. So they were trying to, that whole mentality of, we're going to break you to build you back up. Um, they took that to a personal level with like attacking me for being there for volleyball. Um, and I just, it, I wouldn't say broke me, but it got me wondering, like, is, can I do this? Can I do this? And I went back to my room during one night of, um, beast barracks, which is our version of basic training. And I just said, I can do this. I meant to be here for a reason. I'm not going to let them break me and have me question, you know, w- leaving here. I'm not going to do that. And I just, I, I let them make comments about, you know, if you're here just for volleyball, I'll leave now, which I wasn't. The sole, the sole purpose is I wanted to serve my country. If I got to play volleyball in the process, that's amazing. But the whole thing was I want to serve my country. So I wasn't going to let them discourage me from that. And then during the academic years, there were a few times when I wasn't doing the best academically. And I did question, do I real, should I really <laughs> be here? Like this is a struggle, but I, I made it through. I had a lot of support. A lot of people that had my back encouraged me, knew the potential when I didn't see the potential and helped me along the way. Um, one of my mentors, Obviously, my dad is one of my mentors, but one of my mentors in the military is General C- retired Kaslin Bob Kaslin, and he saw the potential of my leadership and would not let me ever question that or want to leave because I didn't think I could do it. So I'm very grateful to have him as a mentor. Even to this day, like I I literally any decision in the military for duty station, I talked to my dad and then I talked to General Caslin. I'd be like, "Okay, sir, what do you think about this?
1: one?" Well, you know, it's 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 amazing. So many things are amazing about that story, Maureen. It's just like, how old were you when you were going through all of this? I mean, what, like Um, I was 19, 19, 18
2: years
1: old, 18. So where does the presence of mind come from? I mean, you're 18 years old. West Point, now, it's an amazing school in and of itself, but mm-hmm. they – what you talked about, the military breaking you down and building you back up, that they do that for a very specific reason. They make it very, very difficult and chaotic. They want to weed out the people that they think might not be a good fit to be a commissioned officer.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But 18 years old, like you're looking in the mirror and, and you're hooch and you're saying to yourself, like, I'm meant to be here. Like, this is what I'm supposed to do. Where did that epiphany come from in you? Because, I mean, I, I imagine in order to get you to that spot, shit had to be hitting the fan all around you for you to even have that almost come to Jesus moment with yourself, right? It
2: it it did. Um, during our version of basic training, when I got to that point, it was kind of the, I want to serve my country if I, if I left now, I would always wonder what if, and I didn't put myself, like, I didn't, I turned down any other school that I got into for this. Um, so it was kind of that in a sense, like I'm think about the end state, what you want to do. And can you deal with this pain per se right now, or this, hard time to get to that end state. It's not always going to be this way. It's not always going to be people yelling and screaming and everything else at you. And I think that not with the yelling and screaming, but just growing up in a military family, I had that sense of um, not formality. I'm, I can't even think of the word, but structure, the sense of structure. I It was Kind of like I I knew part of what I was getting into. And then the other part, I just had to remind myself when they were in Beast Barracks going for the personal attacks. Like, it's not going to be like this for four years. I just have to get through this until the academic year. And then the academic year when it was, I focused... And honestly, I focused more on volleyball. I earned my starting spot as a freshman, like five matches into the season for my position. And I focused, in all honesty, I focused more on volleyball than I did the academics. And I was like, oh, the academics will just come. That's not the case. It was extremely hard academically at West Point. And because I, at 18 years old, I did not prioritize like I should have. And I had to basically deal with the decision I made to put volleyball first and let my academics take second place. And it was an uphill climb the remaining time at West Point. But it was always that mentality like it won't be like this forever. It will get better. You will. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. You will walk across that stage and get your diploma. You will commission like you just have to not not suck it up, but just, you know, deal. I mean,
1: probably suck it up, (laughs) like probably just deal with
2: it, right? (laughs) D- deal with the, the pain and the hardship at the time for that end state.
1: Did it get better?
2: It did. I, I mean, I, each semester I got better academically and things got better. I might've had to go to summer school a few summers, <laughs> 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 but I'm um, in, um, going into my senior year, I needed a certain GPA and it was in a summer school class. I needed like this one grade in order to be able to play eligibility wise, because that's how much I put volleyball first my freshman year, first semester. So I was constantly like making sure I could still be eligible GPA wise. Um, and I needed, I think a B in this class and I was 1% away and I got a B minus. And I had already gone home for the remaining part of my summer um, and I got a phone call from the volleyball, volleyball coach that was like, you're going to need to come back and take another summer school class starting next week. Oh and my I was God. supposed to go on a family vacation with my mom and stepdad. And I, I said, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'll have to call you back. And I called my mom because she was out running errands. we were supposed to leave the next day for our family vacation. And I was already in California. And I said, you know what? I'm just not going to play volleyball my senior year. This isn't this isn't worth it. This pain, heartache, frustration, like it felt like freshman year or beast barracks all over again. And my mom said, "Think about it for a little bit." And I thought, and I'm so glad that she said that because I Opted out of the family vacation. I went back, took the summer school class, and we went to NCAAs for the first time in school history. um, That season, that my senior season. So I took all of that anger and frustration and heartache that – I mean, I I basically did that to myself by freshman year, and it was just the repercussions of it. But had I not – directed all of that into something else who knows
1: i mean what an amazing life lesson for people who are watching mm-hmm. or listening like like you've talked i mean we've been on here for about 20 minutes now and you've talked multiple times about me- the importance of having good mentors your dad your mm-hmm. mom mm-hmm. uh a, a general which is amazing um and and not making rash decisions mm-hmm. when shit's hitting the fan all around you just taking a deep breath like trying to take a step back, get yourself in a good state of mind and just be patient. I mean, so like seeking wise counsel, right? Like talking mm-hmm. to mentors, all of that is so important. So if you're watching and you're listening to this and you find yourself like in a chaotic moment, like, my God, like what an amazing lesson you just like. And and also one of sacrifice and duty, like you said, all right, I'm not going to do the family vacation. I'm just going to go back and do the summer school. I'm going to put my nose to the grindstone mm-hmm. and. You and your team were rewarded for that going to NCAA. I mean, what an amazing experience that must have been.
2: Oh, it it was. And we actually actually played. We didn't make it out of the first round of the tournament, but it was still an honor being there. But we played in your home state. We played at Penn State, and we played UPenn in the first round. And we (laughs) actually, on UPenn, there were two girls I went to high school with that were on the UPenn team. So it was pretty cool. It's like a little reunion from California (laughs) in Pennsylvania.
1: (laughs) That's pretty awesome. Okay. So you, you, you make it through West Point, right? And was the experience as a woman going through West Point? And I typically don't like to like differentiate man, woman, divide people into little groups. That's something that the left does. I don't like that, but the experience has to be different, right?
2: It is, and there were roughly over, a little over 100 women in my class, and we graduated with just over 1,000. Now there are more. Each year there's been an increase in the women in each class. However, it is a very tight-knit group. Um, It is (laughs) funny. One of my classmates, one of my female classmates, actually ran in Pennsylvania 1, this last election. And she reached out to me to like her campaign page. And I'm like, you must not know my political affiliation (laughs) because we are not on the same page, like you were not. (laughs) But because of that West Point, like female West Point grad, I think that that's why she did it. But um, for the most part, we're very close. I still am friends with a lot of the ladies that I graduated with, Um, even girls on the volleyball team we still get together um even the ones that weren't in my class but
1: so so you so it's your senior year. What do you call it? What do you call seniors? Um, Firsties. Firsties. Yeah, that's what I thought. Mm-hmm. Firsties. You guys got all these weird names for freshmen through seniors. <laughs> like, like I was an, I was an ROTC guy. Like, I'll just be like up upfront and honest with you all. Like, I couldn't make it through West Point. Like, it's <laughs> too structured, too disciplined too too much structure, too much discipline for me. Um, I couldn't do it. But, but I would go and I'd sp- like outlaw platoon for some for some reason. I'd like like juniors and seniors. What were what were juniors? Cows.
2: Oh, cows. Yeah. Yeah. Cows. cows
1: and firsties. I go and I present to them. Um, so I got an opportunity to see West Point cadets. And by the way, like I'm just joking. Like they're amazing. Uh they're amazing and highly motivated. They give you faith in our country and the future of our country. At least when I was there. Um and I guess like, so you're you're a firstie. Like what what was your branch? You finally get your branch. What did you branch in the army?
2: Um, so at the time it was quartermaster, but then For the logistics branches, once you go to your captain's career course, you morph into or become a logistics officer. So you could command any one of the logistics branch um, type of companies. But I branched out of West Point quartermaster. Ironically enough, I never served in a quartermaster position as as a lieutenant, as a second lieutenant, first lieutenant. I was either um, I was a maintenance platoon leader, so an ordinance position and then staff positions. I was slotted, whatever, whatever unit it was, wh- were those branches that they and What were was your on.
1: first duty assignment, Maureen Fort Campbell. Oh, nice. You and like I loved
2: it. it? I love yeah, I- everyone. I- love
1: everyone loves the 101st Airborne. Everybody loves first camp Fort Campbell. And,
2: and I was, um, I love country music. So being so close to Nashville was amazing and I was with um, the 326 Engineer Battalion. So that was an interesting first duty station, and I deployed with them. Um, it Being with different units, like not being part of the sustainment brigade as my first duty station, it kind of opened my eyes to what the different branches, other branches did. So yes, I was... When I got to Campbell, my unit had left for Iraq in January, and I got there. I signed in, I want to say, like February 4th, Um, and they said, oh, you'll just be on Rear D, and then they needed more people over there, so I ended up deploying in April, But, and I was in the S-4 shop when I was deployed, and then I took over a platoon when we were leaving Iraq. But... It kind of opened my eyes to see. I mean, I went out on missions with some of the companies that were engineer companies while I was deployed. And it opened my eyes to see exactly what they do, not only stateside, but also in a combat environment or deployed mm-hmm. environment.
1: What um, what year did you deploy to Iraq?
2: To, uh, 2011. So I deployed the end of April of 11 and then... We were supposed they were supposed to be there from January to January, but we came back in November.
1: How'd your um? How'd your parents feel about your deployment to Iraq?
2: I mean, they they knew that it was something. At West Point, you trained because we came in in a time of war, so you knew you were going to deploy at some point. So to me, I was just like, okay, this is part of the job. Like, yeah, th- right. this exactly. is what I, I knew this when I when I went to West Point. I knew this when I commissioned. Um, and my parents didn't really talk about. It. I mean, we talked about, which was a hard conversation that I had to have with them. Um, what I would want to happen if something were to happen to me while I was it's deployed. An, it's an
1: unbelievably hard conversation. I've had it as well, but you, it's one that you have to have.
2: Mm-hmm. And. I didn't even think about having that conversation. And actually when we were doing the deployment, uh, um, SRP, like going through the different stops before you deploy, someone said, you know, I had a soldier who, who ha- who was killed and his parents were divorced and he didn't have that conversation with them. And he also didn't put it into writing into a will. So then the parents I mean, this happened years prior and the parents were still arguing about where to bury their child. Um, and my parents are divorced. I don't think that they would ever argue about that, but I didn't want to put them into that, In that position. Posi- yeah. My God. I just I, I just I said, This is these are my desires. If something were to happen to me while I was deployed, this is what I want. And that was probably the hardest conversation I've ever had with them. Um, because you could just see it on their faces like that it, that was a possibility that it could just leaving on a deployment that could happen. Um, so I mean, they didn't really want to talk about much about the deployment. They would just ask me how I'm doing. Like when I would, when I was able to talk to them while I was deployed. Um, but They didn't really want to talk to me about how they were feeling about me being deployed. And then I actually heard an interview that my dad did with John Fredericks when when he was talking about, you know, sending America's sons and daughters over to Ukraine and Russia and how that, that this is what the regime, this current regime wants, basically. And, you know, parents don't know what it's like to sit there and pray every night that their child comes home in one piece and not in a, a transfer case. Um, so that kind of uh, honestly that really hit me hard cause I didn't think about how they were feeling each night that I was deployed, like thinking, Oh, please let my daughter, when I wake up in the morning, please let her still be alive. So and I, I, mean, I only went to Iraq once. I can't imagine had I deployed numerous times. Like whenever Joe Kent's on and he talks about his eleven combat deployments, I, I could not imagine as a parent what that, what that would do to you, knowing that your child is in harm's way multiple times.
1: I um, it, I, I will say I didn't when I was in Afghanistan. I didn't realize at the time. When I was in combat, um, I didn't realize how much that experience was affecting my parents. And Mm -hmm. as a platoon leader in combat, you know, I didn't have the kind of relationship with my company commander where I could vent to him. And I sure as hell never griped down, right? Mm -hmm. So I wasn't going to do that with my troops or my non-commissioned officers because they needed to see me as somebody who could handle... The worst that the enemy has but endure and continue to lead mm-hmm. and so i would vent to my dad and like i know you're probably thinking like what dude what are you crazy like that's crazy you don't do that but at the time i wasn't thinking clearly and i didn't realize just how deeply that was affecting my father and i mean it, 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 it really really i mean back then like I'm, I'm a little older than you um i was in afghanistan in 2006 but back then like we didn't have like internet where things were all we had a couple of phones that we'd use in our um, mwr like for those mm-hmm. watching listening morale welfare recreation where we call home but we also had like aol instant messenger and as an officer i had internet in my room for sending up reports and stuff and so my my dad ended up becoming almost a slave to that instant messenger bell where he'd watch my name on there like when you're you know when you're you don't touch your mouse for a while and your name goes gray. He was like, just watch it forever. Send in some missions, and that ding would come up that I had messaged him. He would just like we go out on week long mission cycles and that would be like his existence. And I never realized it. And now I'm a parent and I've got, you know, a 13 year old. And You talked about watching 9-11 when you were 13 and having the presence of mind to say, like, oh, my God, like never again. I'm, I'm going to fight for my country, and make sure that never happens again. Um so when you say that it hits close to home because I have a 15 year old, I have a 13 year old and I've also got ones younger than that. But um, it, all of this experience, Maureen, has shaped my perception and perspective on American foreign policy as well. You're talking about your father and how he talks, John Fredericks, about Ukraine. I, I, the way I try to frame this with Americans is like, if is Ukraine so important to you? That you're willing to send your own son or daughter to fight, bleed and die for that country. If the answer is no, and I'm willing to bet that it is, then it's not that important, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's the prism through which we should look at these monumental decisions, whether or not to send Americans to war. But my problem is, is this is also a problem with Republicans and Democrats is they don't look at it like that. And it's precisely because. Many of them, not all of them, but many of them have never experienced what it's like to go to war themselves or have a child in the fight.
2: I I agree with you. And, you know, what you experienced and what I experienced are completely different. So even people that have served that are in Congress right now, they all have different experiences. Of course. Because yeah. Especially. I mean, even people that went to Iraq, too, years earlier, have a different experience because it was operation new dawn when i went so technically it wasn't any combat i mean we still had casualties during during that time but it, it just like you were saying i i believe that people in positions of power that continue to vote to send america's sons and daughters to war have never had to experience it Because or had as a actually as a person deployed or in the military or as a parent having your child go over. Because if you had you wouldn't you wouldn't want to put wouldn't want to put someone else in that same position that you were in. You you've experienced it. You wouldn't want to for something that is not our our fight. Ukraine and Russia is not our fight. You to do another endless war. I mean, twenty years in Afghanistan, and look at how we withdrew out of Afghanistan.
1: What's so upsetting to me about all this is that there are still Americans trapped in Afghanistan.
2: hundred uh, percent.
1: Blinken testified on Capitol Hill that they there are still over a hundred Americans in Afghanistan, and yet uh, both. Republicans and Democrats are clamoring for another war in Ukraine before we even got Americans out of the last war. Yeah, it, it, it's enraging to me because Wait. that war I look, Maureen, I don't, I loved serving my country. I don't mm-hmm. regret it for a second. I'm not a victim. I'm a, I am volunteered for it. And I do it again in a second. And I know you feel the same way. I could just tell by talking to you. And if there were ever a moment that this country, came under attack or needed americans to defend it i'd be at first in the line in the line to do it but it's our job as it's our job as leaders maureen to say wait a second this isn't worth american blood and i'm not going to be frivolous with that decision or careless with that decision
2: a hundred percent and if they feel that strongly about ukraine and russia like you said, how about we get the Americans out of Afghanistan first? That should be the priority. We just literally packed up in the middle of the night and left. And then left Americans and we're like, "Oh, we gave you the option to get out of here, but you chose not to." Like this administration and I I mean, that leaves a bitter taste in my mouth even saying that the regime is all about not n- no accountability. They are so willing to pass the buck off to someone else and not hold anyone in a senior leadership position accountable. Why is General Milley still in that position? That botched withdrawal out of Afghanistan? I'm sorry, you should be gone from your job. You're not good at your position. You're not a good leader. You should be done. Like, I mean, um, look, I mean, enjoying look, retirement, you're not. J- I agree. Austin, I mean, that's him, too. Aust- really- Austin
1: just said the other day on Capitol Hill, he has no regrets about the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I'm like, how can anyone how can any leader be so aloof and
2: careless with their words to say something like that? Because he well, it wasn't me. It was someone lower than me that made this decision. I just. So they should be held accountable for it. And he also was in charge of the withdrawal out of Afghanistan. Was he asleep when we, or not Afghanistan, (laughs) I'm sorry, Iraq. Was he asleep when we did the withdrawal out of Iraq? I was part of that. And oh, wait, I know MSNBC came out, you know, on March 19th and 20th was the 20 year anniversary of shock and awe. So the invasion of Iraq, the 19th was the air game. 20th was the ground game. And 20 years and MSNBC says, oh, we don't have we don't have American troops in Iraq right now. There's none. That's a lie. That is a lie. And the fact that Austin was in charge of the withdrawal and we're back in there. You think that maybe had you been awake for that, you would have learned, like, oh, this didn't work so well. You know, we did this well, but we didn't do this well. No. They didn't take any lessons learned in Iraq over to Afghanistan. They just packed up and I'm like, oh, good luck. Hope you make it out. <laughs>
1: and and that's my problem. I mean, so so clearly you fought for you put on the uniform, you you boots, rifle, went to war for this country. And now now that you're out of the military, right? So first of all, how did you come to to make that decision? Like because not only are you fighting, you fought for the you. You walk the walk. You fought in combat for this country. Clearly, you're interested in politics. You're on War Room. You're right there with your dad fighting for the culture and the future of this country in the political arena as well. So, Maureen, tell me about that transition and what was the catalyst that helped you make the decision to transition out of the military?
2: Um, So I actually started thinking about getting out in – 2017, um, I was in command. I was an AIT commander because I had had back surgery due to something that happened earlier in my time in service and then made worse on my deployment. Um, And at my duty station prior to when I was in command, they overlooked me for command because of my back surgery, even though I was uh, basically I was at 95 percent they c- c- overlooked me because I had back surgery. So I ended up being an AIT commander and I don't regret that at all because I helped shape future supply clerks of, of the army and logistics personnel. It's um,
1: awesome. It's awesome. And I love it.
2: I, I was in command actually when my dad became Trump's campaign CEO and chief strategist. And my first command team super supportive. We might not have agreed politically, but they were very supportive of me supporting my dad. And there was a change of command during that process, or during that time when I was in command with my battalion and brigade commander. And both new battalion and brigade commanders were not as supportive and thought that I was entitled or that I felt like I should be treated differently because of who my dad was, which was the furthest thing from the case. Um, I'm like, okay, that is my dad. This is my job. That's, that's my dad. Like kept them to separate things because you don't talk about your political views in the military, or at least we didn't when we were in now they're totally okay. Unless you support Trump and then they're coming after you. Oh yeah, this Unless you're, unless
1: military. you're a conservative, I mean, unless you're a conservative, mm-hmm. I just saw this video and I don't even know if it's real, but this, uh, staff Sergeant drill Sergeant, something she was talking about like how it's the guns and how we need to like disarm all Americans. Well, I mean, obviously clearly it's not the guns. And I, I reject the notion that somehow society is guilty just because a criminal commits a crime. But that's a whole other story for a whole other podcast. But but so you (laughs) – so now you're being – you feel like – I don't know. What's the right word, Maureen? Like you feel like you're being singled out for being Steve Bannon's daughter?
2: A little bit or treated –
1: Treated differently.
2: Differently and not (laughs) – not, not in a, a good,
1: good way. way. So, <laughs> yeah, um, differently, but not in a good, yeah, in a good
2: way. way. So I was like, you know, if this is going to be, and both of these officers were senior leaders within the logistics branch. So it's not like I was not going to see them again, had I continued to serve. So I said, you know, maybe it's time for me, for me to get out. Like once command is done, maybe it's time. I did the paperwork, submitted it to get out prior to talking to one of my mentors I I talked to both parents about it and I talked after I submitted the paperwork to General Caslin and he was like, "Mo, what did you do? Like you have more there's more potential in you in the military. Like what why why?" So, he was superintendent at the time. I get this call from of, him. of West Point. Uh-huh. I so that's call.
1: like what a force a four star position,
2: three, uh, three star,
1: three star, three star. So he's pretty high ranking general. Just so mm-hmm. everybody, everybody's tracking.
2: So I get this call from him a couple days later. Um, G one is going to be calling you. You need <laughs> to pull you need to pull your packet. So G one is like the pr- personnel for the entire, um, for all branches. It goes to G one. Yeah. Yeah. And so G one will be calling you. Or like very G1. very
1: high up, very yeah. high up.
2: We'll be reaching out to you. You need to request to pull your packet. Uh, I'm by name requesting you to come back to West Point. So I actually, I was super close with my dad's dad. He passed away at a hundred back in, um, uh, last year in 22. But when I did command, I lived, my house was 30 minutes from him. Um, and I went over to his house and I, I sat down with him at the kitchen table and I said, you know, I'm just not sure about this assignment. And he looked at me and said, are you kidding me? You got by name requested. You're not giving this up because you want to stay like around him. I was close enough, close enough of a drive to my dad, to my grandpa. So he said, you're not doing that. You're good. <laughs> this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. You're going to take this job. So I did. And I, um, I worked in the athletic department back up at West Point. I was actually director of operations for volleyball and sprint football for the last That's 14. That's pretty months. awesome. hmm The last 14 months.
1: So another uh, lesson for people who are watching, don't make decisions. <laughs> like, don't make decisions yeah. in haste. This sounds like a pretty cool opportunity.
2: It, it was. I mean, once I got up there. General Caslin retired within the year so oh. <laughs> I'm like sir really
1: yeah
2: um but i got to see West Point under General Caslin and then West Point under the last superintendent they had and who there's a drastic change in West Point now um but
1: who's the superintendent
2: now well, so now Is it the it, same
1: person, Maureen, I, I don't
2: know. So it went from general Caslin to general Williams who did some drastic changes and not in a good way. And then now it's general, um, Gillen, but he just had, they had pronoun training in place of sexual assault and sexual, sexual harassment training. So instead of sharp training, which I know everyone in the military like it would always get, Oh, why do we have to do this? It was important training, But you replaced it with pronoun training. (laughs) I thought once they had the change of command from General Williams to General Gillen that it would change. But clearly it seems to be sticking along this path that it took in the last two to three years. Um, But that assignment at West Point Branch didn't tell me it was a year assignment. So six months in, I get this email from Branch that said we're going you're going to come down on orders in a in the next few months and I said oh no I'm not
1: <laughs> because
2: I had seen the way the military was going at that point it, there were signs of it I mean when I was in command we had transgender training because they were talking about tra- um allowing transgender service members coming through basic training and AIT so they were trying to train us even the the senior leaders tra- giving the training they were flipping through their binder, didn't have answers. But when a service member, it was usually NCOs, would ask very legitimate questions, their response was, well, if you don't like it, you can get out. That's the wrong answer, especially someone completely that, ridiculous.
1: Been, and that been makes in me
2: ten, 10 plus years. You're not going to tell them to accept something, and if they don't accept it, then they can just get out like that's and it's completely
1: it's completely contrary to how the military is like Mm -hmm. you talked very early on in this interview maureen about being broken down but the reason why the military does that not just with you but with everybody they break you down and to build you up into something better but not just an individual you're part of a unit you're part of a collective the Mm -hmm. idea that you're only as fast as your slowest person Right. Oh, yeah. You learn to shoot, move, and communicate together as a team. Then you go and you fight, bleed, and you die together. And this bullshit with pronouns and, and and this focus on individual identity is tearing our military apart. And we're gonna we're gonna pay consequences for it down the line. But it makes my blood boil when I hear patriots like you, who by the way, by the way, volunteered to serve this country, right? You volunteered to serve. You come from a legacy military family. You volunteered to serve, and you have command. You have commanders in the military that are like telling people like you, after ten plus years of voluntary service to this country, if you don't like it, if you don't like this, the 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 pronoun training, you can get out. That's bullshit. That is Uh complete bullshit. And this country is going to pay for these terrible decisions someday. And it makes me sad to say it, but it's true, Maureen. It's true. Uh
2: Oh, I agree with you and you see even to this day good leaders getting out because of what has become of our military. And even when I was in command, you saw the generation that was never told no coming into coming into the military and then you have senior leaders that are just allowing or perpetuating that to be acceptable behavior and that's not you're seeing what we the military that we knew and loved is not the same military at all and because we're losing such great senior leaders it's going to take a long time to build that military back up
1: i agree and then so you make the decision then maureen to to get out right to say goodbye to to the military and 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 now what? What are you up to now?
2: So when I got out, I had a passion, actually, to be a nurse. I wanted to go to nursing school and be a NICU nurse. And that's
1: amazing. That's awesome.
2: My once again, it, my grandpa's kitchen table was like where all the decisions <laughs> seemed to be <laughs> made. Um, my dad was here. My grandpa was at the table. So all three of us are at the table, and my dad. It's like, are you sure that this is what you want to do? Is it just a decision that you're making and you'll change your mind in a couple months? And I literally had an Excel spreadsheet with all of the nursing schools I wanted to apply to. They're like dates for application, the program, like I I had done a ton of research on it. So he said, "Okay, if that's what you if that's what you want to do, okay." Um so then at the time applying I knew I needed to have income coming in. I couldn't not work. Fe- especially because going from the military, it's like, yeah, terminal leave was nice. But then once that's over with, it's like I need to feel like once I get up, I have something to do. There's a purpose to the day, um, not just sitting and doing stuff around the house, which was nice. Do not get me wrong. But um, so I actually took a job with a flooring company doing logistics for them, and they are a very liberal company. So it was only supposed to be a stepping stone. I ended up working there for two years. But at, during that time, I was applying to nursing schools, and honestly, my top two denied me admissions and said that my undergrad GPA didn't make me a good candidate for their school. That, I'm that's the that. dumbest thing. Yeah. It's, and by the time I'm applying, it's 19 and going into 2020. Like, really? My undergrad GPA from I graduated West Point in 2010. So we're looking at 06 to 2010. Never mind all me, your
1: combat experience and command experience and time in and, the military as a leader. It sounds like, I, like it was more just your last name.
2: I, <laughs> I, I hate I to laugh, so, but it sounds like it's my, all the prereqs I took. I got straight A's through Johns Hopkins online. So clearly I am a decent student. I just, at 18 to 22, academics weren't the priority. Like people's priorities changed clearly by my prereqs. I showed that I was a better student. So at that time thinking, well, maybe this isn't actually what God has in mind for me to do. And then all of a sudden, 2020 election like the lead up to it. My dad was um, doing some events about how the Democrats were going to steal the election. Speaking at the events. There was one here in Virginia. I went to it. I was like, very valid point. Also, like stuff I had I'd already heard, but just sitting there listening to him, like, yeah, You're like getting really fired up about it. And then my... I was still working for that flooring company and they were pushing the vaccine in 2020 and I had allergic reactions in the military to vaccines. So medically I had a reason for not getting it despite my views on the COVID vaccine. That aside, so they couldn't fire me because I had a legitimate, legitimate medical reason. So they were trying to fire me or find a reason to fire me for any other reason um, and I saw that writing on the wall. They were making it blatantly clear. So I actually called my dad and I said, I know you've talked about us working together. Let's talk. Once again, grandpa's dining room or kitchen table. We sit down and talk about it. And the first thing out of his mouth was finally, because he had seen the potential <laughs> for man politics from the beginning. And I just... I was, you know, that, that stubborn kid from way back when I was like, no, I'm going to – this is my path. I'm going to make the decision. But he saw that potential, and I haven't looked back since – I literally my last day at that other company was November 11th, so it was Veterans Day of 21, and I have been with War Room. I started with War Room November 12th of 21.
1: That's amazing. And so now you – you're in the political arena. You're in the fight, Maureen. There's no two mm-hmm. ways about it. You see, I've been in the fight myself, but you see how vicious it can be. I mean, we're right now, you know, like the most recent political things that are happening is the Democrats, communist Democrats in New York City indicted President Trump on bogus charges. Mm-hmm. You had a radical Democrat that is Many consider to be worse than Lori Lightfoot, somebody who just believes in like letting all violent criminals out of prison. So Chicago, we just elected Mm -hmm. in Chicago. So there's going to be a that that city is going to continue its downward trend, a death spiral in Chicago, and we just had. The Wisconsin Supreme Court flipped from Republican controlled Supreme Court to Democrat control, which means they're going to unravel mm-hmm. all of the existing election integrity laws in that state while, of course, rolling out a bunch of uh, new laws that loosen election integrity and make mm-hmm. it easier for Democrats to win in the critical swing state of Wisconsin like Republicans cannot win in 2024 I don't see a path to the presidency if they if we lose Wisconsin we have to have it lost that race too and so you y- you see how Democrats won, they're laser focused on winning elections. I don't think anybody was talking about that Wisconsin Supreme Court race. I mean, I had Scott Pressler on this program, you and War Room, your dad, you guys had Scott Pressler mm-hmm. on multiple times to talk about Wisconsin, but the establishment wing of our party didn't seem to be focused on it at all. That's a real problem because Democrats are laser focused on winning races just like this, mm-hmm. and you've seen the weaponization of our of our justice system, and you've seen it personally. You have your father who has served this country his entire life, right, in uniform and then served as chief of staff in the White House, worked with President Trump, worked with the president of the United States. And they're doing to your dad exactly what they're doing to President Trump on these bullshit charges just to make an example of him just because he doesn't have the right views and what – Many people don't realize much in the same way, Maureen, that like a parent that like that has never had a child serve in war will never really understand what it's like to go through that to feel like you might lose your son or daughter every day. Um, when the system is weaponized against good people, it affects more than just the person that's going through it. Like, How has that been for you to watch your father treated this way by a country that he loves?
2: Infuriating. And I think, I, I know yesterday, a lot of people were upset. I was upset as well of what they're doing to, to President Trump. Um, I think that I, I didn't voice it as much as some of my friends yesterday, just because I've been through that. I've seen them go after my dad. Um, and yesterday, you know, I think a lot of people were expecting to see President Trump honestly perp walked in handcuffs. I, I wouldn't have put it past them up there in New York city in all honesty, because that's exactly what they did to my dad. You think that my dad is such a flight risk or such, you have to make such a show of it that you have to put him in handcuffs and walk him, him down. Um, and of course my dad, the entire time was talking. <laughs> so, um, uh, And Peter Navarro, they did that to him. They put him in leg shackles. You know, it's 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 infuriating. They are it's political, a political witch hunt on all three of these gentlemen. And what they don't realize is it's not going to silence anyone. Not only not only are these three, especially my dad and President Trump, they're not going to be silenced. They're going to continue to fight, but it's just adding motivation to everyone behind them to continue to fight. Um, And it's not just me, you know, in our family, it's his siblings, his nieces and nephews that are frustrated seeing such a good person being politically persecuted because he is speaking the truth.
1: Yeah, because And why, like what, like, so uh, the double standard and Eric Holder, who, by the way, was mm-hmm. worked for the federal government when he was subpoenaed. And I, I honestly, I question the constitutionality of Congress's and the House's subpoena power in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. It's not it's not a power that's enumerated in the actual Constitution. Supreme Court has upheld that, you know, it's an implied power just because Congress has been doing it for the past hundred years. But mm-hmm. OK. Maybe I'll grant. OK, maybe the House can subpoena people who work for the government, people like Fauci, people like Eric Holder, people who are are working in government. But what gives Congress the right to subpoena a private citizen? In fact, we should have the right to subpoena members of Congress. They work for us, not the other way around. So I I I like Eric Holder. What happened to him when he was subpoenaed? Nothing, nothing. When he when he didn't when he didn't show Uh turn up right nothing but yet they're laser focused on on going after people like your dad and trump and peter navarro for one reason and one reason only to say you stepped out of line and we're making an example of you so no one else does it's Uh, disgusting
2: it, it is extremely disgusting and the fact that there were nine republicans that voted to hold him in contempt of congress you'd expect that from democrats because he's voicing this is with regards regards to my dad, um, that he's voicing and speaking the truth and they don't want that out there. They want their narrative to be the one pushed. So I, y- you get it that there are going to be Democrats that vote to hold him in contempt of Congress for actually speaking the truth. But the nine Republicans that voted to hold him in contempt of Congress and two of them are still in office right now. So they need to be voted out come 2024,
1: I agree. Who are they?
2: Well, one my classmate ran against, but
1: <laughs> you don't. Oh, you don't have to say. You don't have to say name. I don't want to put you on the spot. All right, ceasefire so on that. You don't one, have to one, drop names. I
2: won't. I won't. I won't say names. But one is in Pennsylvania, and one she is from South Carolina.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, okay, Maureen. What's um? What is what's next for you? CEO of War Room, War Room's growing like gangbusters. Someone texted me the other day, they're like, Steve Bannon and War Room's rolling out a publishing company. That's pretty awesome. I'm mm-hmm. like, those people never stop. <laughs> they're, they're just growing and growing. So what's what's next for you?
2: We're like you said, we're always growing. Um, <laughs> there's no day off in the War Room. People <laughs> think no that day. we take a day off. You know, Sunday's a little bit lighter day. Someone asked me recently how many hours I work. It's like about 18, 16 (laughs) to 18 hours a day. A day. Um, And and usually (laughs) the other hours I'm sleeping. Um, But Sundays are a little bit less than that. I do get to enjoy a little relaxing time during Sunday and some work. But just continue to grow the show. And we're always, you know, trying, we're staying ahead of, the news cycle and just getting more people involved and growing the grassroots movement. We saw in 2022 the candidates that won their elections, a lot of them had grassroots movements. Like one of my friends, to.
1: yeah, exactly one my, right.
2: One of my friends, she she was out there door knocking six hours a day seven days a week i mean she had an amazing grassroots effort in her campaign and she was part of that campaign and she won she's now a congresswoman and you see other people within the republican party that just phoned in their campaigns and they didn't win and now we have very far left democrats in in these positions um so we want to or at least i want our show to continue to grow the grassroots movement. We are, we're constantly getting new viewers to the show. Um, So as CEO, that is my goal to continue to be force multipliers to get people that haven't watched the show or who, you know, have some type of view of my dad or our family based on what mainstream media is trying to push. My goal is to open their eyes that that is not the correct narrative um, and get them to be viewers of the show, and and see what actually needs to be done in this country. Um, as CEO, I do more of the business side. So my dad is the face and contents of the show, <laughs> and I am. I told someone I said he's the beauty on the brains, but he's <laughs> like, let's be real, he's <laughs> the one. He's like the smartest man I know. So he's, he's
1: very smart. He's very um, smart.
2: It, I I do all the business side of it. So I, my goal is to continue, you know, to grow our sponsors too. We have some amazing sponsors who have great products across the board. So that's my goal is to build the business on, build the show and the company on the business side and just continue to help my dad in any way possible. I mean, and, and eventually, eventually I know I know my dad would like to be a grandfather, so you know, <laughs> eventually have enough time to have a family and let him have some grandkids of his
1: own. Well, Maureen, I have to say your parents, your family, you know, not just your dad, but they all must be so proud of you, your service and what you continue to do for this country. Um, like your dad said, finally, you're in the fight. Stay in the fight. Oh. This country needs you. Um and, and thank you so much for for coming on the show. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. I was psyched to talk to you and and God bless you. Seriously. And I'll, for those of you who are watching, listening, subscribe to the podcast on YouTube, Rumble, like wherever you listen to podcasts. We need your help. We love you. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Maureen Bannon. She's a patriot. She's a fighter. She loves this country. Follow where, where can people find you?
2: They can find me on Getter and Twitter at Maureen underscore Bannon and also on Instagram at Real Maureen Bannon. And I post a ton, usually on Instagram. I got to get back to posting more on Twitter and Getter.
1: (laughs) (laughs) so there you you, you've got your marching orders (laughs) follow marine wherever she is she's a pipe hitter um as she says she's a force multiplier all right everybody thank you for listening to battleground podcast where we never retreat and never surrender remember to subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts and also follow us on youtube and rumble so you don't miss a beat and don't forget to check out battleground apparel for top quality patriotic clothing that lets you show your pride in america together let's continue to fight for our country and never back down god bless you all and may god bless this exceptional nation that we live in take care